Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the book of the prophet Ezekiel and chapter 14. Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel's great mission, as with all the prophets, is to declare God's word to God's people. And although his particularly the early part of his book, he has to say some pretty harsh things. His great yearning is that the people will take God seriously. And they will take sin seriously, not so that they may simply despair, but rather so that they may turn from their wickedness and live, rather than putting trust in that which cannot help. And so he's spoken in chapter 13 of the false prophets who say peace when there is no peace. And in chapter 14 we have a call to repentance. So Ezekiel chapter 14. Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man. These men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity. And then comes the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols, that I may seize the house of Israel by their art, because they are all estranged from me by their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what caused him to stumble into iniquity. Then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me. I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign of proverb, and I will cut him off from the midst of his people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is induced to speak anything, that I the, Lord, I, the Lord, have induced that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel, and they shall bear their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be the same as the punishment of the one that inquired, that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, says the Lord God. The word of the Lord came, against, came again to me, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread and send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they empty it and make it so desolate that no man may pass through because of the beasts, even though these three men were in it as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. Only they would be delivered. 
and the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword on that land and say, sword, go through the land, and I cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in it. As I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only they themselves would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land, and pour out my fury on it in blood, and cut off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughter. Neither son nor daughter, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, how much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence to cut off man and beast from it. Yet behold, there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you, and you will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning disaster I have brought upon Jerusalem. All that I have brought upon it, and they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have done nothing without cause, that I have done in it, says the Lord God. And may God bless the reading of his holy and precious word. Our text this evening is found in the chapter that we read, the book of the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 14. And verse 11. That the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, says the Lord God. Ezekiel, certainly the early part of his book, often feels quite a severe book. But behind it all is not mere anger, but is a desire that God's people should be what they ought to be. Behind it is God's desire to refine his people and to make his people truly his people. God's covenant is summed up in these very simple words. I shall be their God and they shall be my people or they shall be my people and I shall be their God one has summed it up as God's people in God's presence in God's place and that is what we have at the very end of scripture in the book of Revelation that last chapter we see God's people in God's presence, in God's place. And we hear in Revelation 21 those words, they shall be my people and I shall be their God. Ezekiel was called to speak to people who were too sure of themselves that they were God's people. And yet they were so sure of this that they did not ask whether God was truly their God. The problem of this chapter is the problem of the idols in the heart. It was because of idolatry that God's judgment fell on Jerusalem. And these people, Ezekiel among them, he carried away into captivity. And yet, 
Although the idols that they had worshipped had been left back in Jerusalem, they had taken some of them with them, not physically, but in their hearts, within their minds. And so we see here, first of all, God's refusal to answer. We see, secondly, God's call to repentance. And thirdly, we see God's just retribution. Refusal, repentance, and retribution. And first we see God's refusal to answer. Ezekiel was a priest. And by this point it had become obvious to the people that Ezekiel was also a prophet. And the prophet's great task is to speak God's word. Not their own word, not their own ideas. That's, of course, what's condemned in the previous chapter. Chapter 13 is those who prophesy out of their own heart and say, hear the word of the Lord. That is to say that they have their own ideas and they father them on God. (coughs) But the work of the prophet is to speak God's word and to say truly, not falsely, Thus says the Lord, or this is what God has said. And so elders of the people came to Ezekiel and they sat before him and they came to ask him questions, to ask him to inquire of the Lord for them. We don't know what they asked to be inquired of the Lord for, but they asked that he would ask God about them. And God's response comes without any mention of what these people said. Or even if they'd said anything at all by this point. But God suddenly speaks to Ezekiel, son of man, these idols, uh, sorry, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? These men who were supposed to be, who were the leaders of the people, had carried idols in their hearts. Now in the Hebrew mind, the heart does not refer simply to the feelings, it refers to the inner person. It means that these idols, these false gods, had become a part of their identity. And when we think of idolatry in Israel and Judah... We're not to think of it in terms of people abandoning God completely, but rather the problem was that they ceased to trust God solely and they put some trust in other things. They had put up these false gods, these idols, and they were relying on them in some way. They were engaged in worship, not just of the true God, but of false gods as well. Later on in the book of Ezekiel, we have some truly shocking statements that are made about Jerusalem and Judah, in which he likens them to an adulterous, well first of all, an adulterous wife woman who has been married to a husband and yet she's running after all these other men and the 
imagery uses is shocking, he's graphic. And it's supposed to be shocking, it's supposed to make the people sit up and, but are we like that? And the answer that Ezekiel has to give is, yes, you are like that. And it's spoken not to say, and therefore I have nothing to do with you, but it's spoken so that the people will think on their actual needs, their actual situation, and they won't fool themselves that things are better than they are, that they won't heal or try and heal their wound lightly. God knows the truth. And we're told that these had put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. That these people, rather than putting aside those things, that they brought them into their minds again and again and again. They kept coming back to the very things that had led to them being in this awful situation under God's judgment. One of the reasons for that was the way that idolatry worked in their hearts. That they thought of it as kind of insurance. Yes, we we trust in God, but we trust in other things as well. In some respects, it's the opposite of presumption. Presumption is when someone says, well, I'll trust in God and therefore I don't have to do anything. In this case, it's I don't trust in God and therefore I will bring something else in to trust in too. And yet, it's impossible to actually have an insurance in case God fails. And what foolishness to say, well, in case God fails, I'll have something else ready when the something else isn't real. Because the problem with idolatry is the idols aren't real. The idols don't stand for anything. The idols are just empty. This is the problem with idols. They are worthless in and of themselves. They are lumps of whatever substance they're made out of. My grandmother had an uncle or a cousin who was a missionary missionary to China and did some work in the Far East. And in those days, when people were converted from idolatry, what they would do is they would take the idols and they would give them to the missionary. Because if they kept these idols around the house, and they might have said, well, that's a, a lump of bronze, it might be useful or something, but if you kept it around the house, there would be a temptation then to take the idol and to keep treating it as though it had some sort of power. And so missionaries would take them, and what they do is they take the idols home with them. Because the idols meant nothing to the missionaries, and what they'd do is if when the missionaries went on their deputation tours, they'd have these idols as their visual aids. They'd say, this is what these people, who were missionaries too, have given up. And my grandmother had this big, about this sort of size, bronze idol that had been gilded. And, and the idol could, there's one thing the idol was really useful for. It made a wonderful doorstop. This great lump of bronze, the door's not going to move against that. And that's all it's useful for. 
And an idol in the heart isn't even useful for that. And it's that which causes him to stumble into iniquity. The converts who gave their idols to the missionaries did so because they knew that the idol was something that would cause them, if it was still around the house, to keep thinking of it almost unconsciously as having some kind of power when it has no power. The proper thing to do with idols is to get rid of them. But because these people had simply been torn away from Jerusalem, they had set them up in the heart. And so God says, I will not listen to these people who are not listening to me. I will not answer them in the way that they think, but I will answer him according to the multitude of his idols. That the response will be according to his lack of faith and his putting trust in something else. But why is that? Is it to make the people despair? Quite the opposite is that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart. That I may grab hold of them and get their attention. So that this not listening, not responding, is to lead them to go, well, why isn't God responding? And then this bringing punishment upon them is for that purpose that they may be brought to repentance. So we come to our second point, to repentance. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent. Turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. Repentance, the word here means to to turn. And it is to turn away from your idols and to turn to God. The picture is that you have a man and he's got in a room and there's idols this side and there's God the other side. And so he's got to, if he's going to look to one, he's got to turn his back on the other Turn your back upon the idols, he says, and turn to me. And anything that people put their ultimate trust in other than God can become an idol. Anything that people live for that distracts them from God can become an idol. Anything that causes people to stumble into sin is an idol and they have to turn away from it and turn to God because Turning to God is to turn away from that which does us harm and to turn to the one who loves us and calls us to himself. And here God warns again and again and again he warns them about those who, about separating themselves from God. Because part of the problem was that they hadn't fully grasped. That it's one or the other. It's God or the idols. It can't be both and. It must be either or. They are opposite ends of the room. And you either turn your back on the idols and turn to God. Or turn your back on God and turn to the idols. And he warns them about false prophets. He's already in chapter 13 warned about those people who say peace when there is no peace. Who tell people everything's alright when everything is not alright. Those who hurt 
Those who make sad those whom God has not made sad. And those who make happy those whom God does not want to be happy. Because if they are happy then they won't seek the Lord and find true happiness. They have made their heart the righteous sad whom I have not made sad. And a strength on the hands of the wicked so he does not turn from his wicked way to save his life. That's what false prophets do. But Ezekiel now and and God here takes them back behind the false prophet. He says the false prophet is part of God's providence. Now God's plan of providence is often a complicated thing to us. It's like when we look at it, it's like we're looking at the, the wrong side of a tapestry. If you look at the front, you see the picture. If you look at the back, you've got a tangle of threads. But he says this, that if the prophet is induced to speak anything, the man who is setting up eyes in his heart comes to a prophet and says, prophesy for me. What does the Lord say? And the prophet, instead of saying, the Lord says, repent, bring something else. God says, and I'm behind that too. Just as God put a lying spirit in the mouths of the prophets to bring Ahab, the evil king of Israel, to destruction and judgment. And you're not to listen to the false false prophets. Yes, they exist in God's plan and they are there in God's plan. And they choose to be false prophets. They do what they want to do. And they are there to be there as a a trap for other people who want to do what they want to do and don't want to listen to God. But they shall bear their iniquity. There shall be judgment upon them. And why that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, says the Lord God. The end of it all is God's people, in God's presence, in God's place. God's great desire for his people is a restoration of that right relationship with him. That they may enjoy all the blessings of his covenant, his gracious covenant. And thus he judges, not because he wants people to suffer but because he wants to bring people back from sin through repentance through a turning away through a a recognition of the reality of their danger and a recognition also of God's grace and mercy to seize them by the heart that they repent and they may no longer stray nor be profaned anymore with their transgressions but that they may be my people and I may be their God. At the end of the judgment, he says to Ezekiel, at the end of repentance is a right relationship, is real peace, that being justified by faith we may have peace with God. And again he speaks of judgment. We come to our third point, to the retribution. And this is God hammering home to the people the importance of what they are hearing, the importance of repentance. Because there were among them people saying, well look, we've got someone like Ezekiel. 
We've got these people in our midst who are godly people. And because of them we'll be alright. We don't have to think about repenting for ourselves as individuals. We can as individuals still carry on this idolatry in the heart. Because Ezekiel isn't and so we'll be alright as a people. And God says, don't think about that. Don't think of that. That's not how it works. God is just. And God does bring judgment because of sin. When a land land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. And he gives these four examples of judgments that God brings against sinful countries. And there they are thinking, well, we've got Ezekiel. We've got these godly men who will pray for us and will be all right. And God says, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel and Job, were in it. Now Noah, Daniel and Job. Noah, that man who found God's grace, who was saved by grace and was ordered to build the ark to the saving of his family. And yes, the rest of the people were judged, but his family were all right. His wife, his sons, and their wives, all of them survived. Those eight souls survived in the ark. Job, that man noted for his patience, his prayer. Job prayed for his friends. Those friends who... Well, those friends who had a, a theology that was almost right and beat him over the head with it and kept telling him, Job, we know, we know that sin leads to suffering. You are suffering horribly, therefore you must have sinned horribly. And of course, we, the readers of the book of Job, all know that that's not what's going on here. In fact, it's... Satan trying to get Job to to curse God and die. Satan trying to show that Job doesn't really trust God for who God is, but what he can get out of God. And it's got nothing to do with Job having sinned. Quite the opposite. It's to do with Job's righteousness that he's suffering. And his friends, as one has put it, they were very good friends as long as they sat with him silently in his grief. When they opened their mouths, well, he was quite right to say, miserable comforters are you all. But he prayed for them, and God was merciful to them. So Noah is a man through whom other people were saved. Job is a man through whom other people were saved. And then Daniel. Now there's a bit of an odd thing going on here with Daniel, because... Noah and Job lived many, many centuries before. But the book of Daniel is taking place concurrently with Ezekiel. Daniel is a, a young man, really, of the, well, of the same exile as Ezekiel. What's going on here? Well, it may very well be that 
Again, in the exile, Daniel already had a reputation. He was already known as a righteous man. There is an alternative reference to another man of the same name. And commentators are divided. Is it another man of the same name or is it Daniel the contemporary? But the point here is you're looking at three godly men. Three men noted for godliness. It probably is the Daniel of the book of Daniel here. Who is noted for his godliness, his stand in even the very court of the king. And these three men, well surely if they together were in a land, the land would be alright. No, God says. They would deliver neither sons nor daughters. Only they would be delivered. Their righteousness, their godliness would avail for them. But other people are not to assume that their godliness, the godliness of the the remnant will avail for them. The presence of godly people in a nation. The presence even within a, and of course ultimately he's talking here about the land, about the people of Judah. The people who made up a part of that Old Testament church. Even within a A church having a few godly people isn't going to save the church. People can't repent for other people. Their righteousness isn't enough. There's to be no assuming, well, we'll be alright because there's a godly remnant who are praying. There is a personal responsibility here. We have to believe individually. We have to trust individually. And there is repentance that is individual. But each turns from the false to the true God. That each believes in God. Each trusts in God. Not enough for there to be other people. Not enough to trust in other people being godly. There must be personal repentance and personal faith. Personal trust. Because yes, God saves a people. Christ died to redeem a people. And that people is made up of individuals. There are two great mistakes that people make when they look at the, at the church. They, the first mistake is the mistake that these people were tempted with. It was the, the mistake of thinking in a, a purely corporate sense. that You've got a, a people who are marked and they are a, a collective, if you will. The second is to think purely individually. God saves individuals and makes them a people. And God saves a people made up of individuals. Individual faith. But gathered into the family of God, the church of the living God that is a body, a community. But it's the community of believers. 
Not the community of people who have some believers among them. But of believers there is an individual personal faith. Personal responsibility. Then finally God speaks of what's going to happen to Jerusalem. It is Jerusalem he's been thinking of all along of course. And he says I shall send all four of these judgments on Jerusalem. The sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence. They would be the sword. The invasion. The Babylonian assault. Taking the city. There would be the wild beasts with the land having been to a great extent depopulated and spoiled by the invading armies. There'd be no one to control the wild, the fierce predators that then would be a danger to people. There would be famine because the land, the crops had been destroyed by the invading forces. There would be Pestilence, you, you cram people together in a city, and what happens? Disease breaks out and people die. And yet, God says there will be a remnant. And the people here perhaps are thinking, well, hasn't he said it's about personal responsibility? Oh, yeah, there will be a remnant. But it won't be the kind of remnant they're thinking about. It will not be a righteous remnant, it will be a rotten rabble. A remnant shall be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you. They too will be carried into the exile. And you will see their ways and their doings. You will see what kind of people they are. That they are not a righteous remnant. That those people back in Jerusalem who have been saying, This land is ours and you in the exile, you, have to be, you must be the offscourings. And God says, you will see these people and when they arrive, you will be horrified. You'll be shocked at how they behave. You'll be shocked at their ungodliness. You'll be shocked at their lack of faith. And then you'll be comforted concerning the disaster I have brought upon Jerusalem. Well, how could you be comforted? Well, it's like this, that they will go, ah, God is just. God is just in his actions. This rotten rabble have been treated as they deserve. Because rather than seeing that first exile and going, you know, if we don't repent, if we don't change our ways, that's going to be us sooner rather than later. They said, oh, well, that's them and we can just enjoy being in the land and we can relax. We didn't suffer the exile. And so they became worse and worse. And so the exiles would look and say, yes, God is just. God is good. We've been mistaken when we've said, God has abandoned us. When we've said, why are we suffering like this? Why are they back in the land? They will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done in it, says the Lord God. And therefore, seeing the rotten rabble and the justice of God, again God 
will seize them by their heart. When we look with faith, there are things indeed that stagger us, that we don't know what's going on, but we can look back at last. And even if it's not in this life, in this age, we shall see in the age to come and we shall understand And we shall see that God has done nothing without cause. That God is just. We look at God's works. We see the the condition in so many ways of the professing church in this land. And as we see the, the corruption exposed in so many places. Can we any more look at the state of the church and say that God is not just in judging the professing church in this land and what is our response well our response is faith in God to trust him he does nothing without cause he shows us and he tells us that it's individual that we must believe as individuals We come to Christ as individuals. We receive of him. We receive his mercy. And as his word goes forth, we come to him. And we see that all he is doing is to this end that the house of Israel, that his church may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with all their transgressions. But that they may be my people, and I may be their God, says the Lord God. Amen.